0: Good morning, church family. It's good to be here with you all. Uh, If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn to 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5. Uh, Today we have a special guest speaker. We already know him, but allow me to introduce him anyways. Uh, Noah Fowler will be speaking today from 1 John, and you may know Noah as our gather director here at Calvary Bible Church. Uh, what you may not know about him, which is one I want to introduce, is I know when I first met some 10 years ago when I was the youth pastor at Southside Baptist Church, and he was one of my students. And he was crazy enough to become one of my youth interns one summer. I don't think he got much sleep that summer and all the lock-ins and stuff we did. It was brutal. Um, but then I don't know, six seven years ago, he felt the Lord's call for him to go into full-time ministry. So he's actually in his final semester for his MDiv from Southern Baptist Seminary up in Louisville, Kentucky. So one more semester to go, and he'll be officially graduated, stamp of approval. And as you probably know, Noah recently got married to Katie Yarbrough, who they met here at Calvary. But it's been great to have Noah as part of our church family. And so today he's chosen to read from 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. I'm using the New American Standard Version. And the reason we read the scripture together every Sunday morning is not an exercise in monotony. It's actually because the scripture tells us to in 1 1 Timothy chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1 of 1 John 5, it says this, Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and that his commandments are not burdensome. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not with water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit of truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And the three are in agreement. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this, that he has testified concerning the Son. Verse 10. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Because he's not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this. That God has given us eternal life. Amen. And this life is in his son. Amen. He who has the son has the life. But he who does not have the son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to you. Who believe in the name of the son of God. So that you may know that you have eternal life and this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will he hears us verse 15 and if we know that he hears us and whatever we asked we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him and all God's people say and may God bless the reading of his word but
1: like Byron said I'm Noah Fowler I'm the gather director here and um, that means that I basically just kind of organize uh, the Sunday morning service And that's been a really fun thing. Uh, It's been a very honoring thing to get to do. But man, I got to visit Calvary when Byron first started coming here. I would come home and I'd visit from seminary. And then I'd go away for six months and I'd come home again. And I'd visit. And I go. I did that for a long time. (laughs) And um, it got to the point of You know, I think it was nearing the end of a semester in person up in Louisville, and I remember calling Byron and talking to him on the phone, uh, just in the middle of my campus. And I I said, "How would you feel about me coming home and helping out and just serving at Calvary?" So he gave me a number of things to uh, to consider, and uh, I got to consider those things. And I called one of my friends, and he said, "He said, man, being at seminary is great, but there is nothing." like doing ministry with real people in the real world. And that's been very true. I'm very honored to uh, be able to call Calvary my home and to be able to call you all brothers and sisters in Christ. So uh, with that, let's go ahead and jump in. So growing up, uh, there always seemed to be a big question in my life when it came to God. Uh, Am I going to heaven It's probably about 13, 14 years ago now. I had some medical problems. I had some weird stuff going on with my eye. I uh, ended up having to get an MRI, and it was kind of scary. Uh, my mom had recently been diagnosed with uh, brain tumors, and it was just it was just this scary thing. So one night I'm hanging out with two of my closest friends in the whole world who live in Birmingham now, and I get to go see them in a few weeks. But we were driving in one of their Ford Explorers and we, you know, drove into the Taco Bell line, picked up our stuff and all that. And we decided to eat our dinner at about midnight that night in the Target parking lot inside that little Ford Explorer. And they both stopped and I was kind of sitting in the back and they turn around and they both look at me and they say, hey, we need to ask you something. If you die tonight, do you know with certainty where you will go? Uh, my response was that uh, I mean I hope I go to heaven. Uh, I'm not that great of a guy. Like I, I hope I hope I make the cut. There's a there's something very wrong about that view of salvation. There's something very wrong about that. But then I go to seminary and I'm talking to PhD students, pastors, people who had just accepted a job as a pastor. I've talked to you all here. I've talked to some of my friends. This question keeps on coming up. How do I know I'm saved? I know Jesus died to pardon sinners, but sometimes I think these things and I know I shouldn't think, or sometimes I do these things and I know I shouldn't be doing them. Uh, so, so maybe that means I'm not saved. So what about you? Who who have you known who struggle with assurance of their salvation? Not for the scary question. You don't have to raise your hand or anything. It's kind of vulnerable. If you're feeling it, go for it. um, (laughs) How many of you have struggled with assurance of your salvation? Uh, I, I imagine that, you know, that's going to be a thing that's going to pop up, and that's one of those whispers that the devil loves to whisper in our ears. And we struggle with this tension. About, I do, I do these bad things, but I, I know, I know Jesus. I know what the Bible says about Him. But maybe I'm just not good enough. Maybe I'm just not going to make the cut. But when we struggle with our assurance, we're at the risk of doing a few things. One is constantly questioning our status before God. We're not confident in our salvation. There's anxiety, there's stress, there's a general lack of rest when we think about God. We think he's just sitting there waiting to yank our ticket to heaven away from us if we mess up one more time. There's just discouragement. And another aspect of it is it's more difficult to boldly share your faith if you're not sure of your own faith how can you boldly proclaim what you have to someone else But then there's another thing that kind of flips Christianity on its head and that's that when we start doing this we turn the focus to our actions and what we're doing and instead of focusing on God so we forget What God has done for us. As a side note, I'm sure there are some of you who need to hear this. Um, People tell me this about probably three or four times a year. Uh, And it's a very freeing truth. It might sound a little abrasive, but it's a very freeing truth. God does not need you. He's delighted to use you. But God's success does not rise or fall on what you do for him. God is bigger than that. The weight of responsibility is on Him. We're just the tools in His hands. You don't tell a hammer good job for building a shed. In a similar way, you don't tell a Christian good job for being saved. We're accountable to the Lord. But at the end of the day, anything good can only come from Him. The Bible speaks to issues of assurance. And the question that I seek to answer this morning is can I know if I'm saved? Spoiler alert, the answer is yes. One hundred percent you can know. Uh but please don't take my word for it. Uh let's be good Bereans together and search the scriptures to figure out how. If you don't know Bereans, I think they're in Acts seventeen. Um and Paul they, they listen to Paul's words and then they go away and they test everything he says. With the scriptures so let's do that this morning so before we dig into the text itself let's go over some background information and kind of set the scene so authorship uh, I was surprised to find this but there's there's a lot of debate over who wrote the book of first John uh, there the authors not referenced in first John and second and third John there is reference to an elder and there was a John the elder who's a historical person who this could have been. That's not John the Apostle. Uh, But some of the earliest commentary on this comes from Polycarp, a bishop in Smyrna, and his contemporary Papias. Interestingly, Papias calls John an elder. But he also initially calls Peter and James elders. And then he later calls them apostles. And so I don't think that that distinguishment uh, really makes that argument there. I personally believe that John the Apostle wrote the letters of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Uh, there's several reasons for that. The big one is that some of you were here for Murray Wilton's sermon series. And the three themes, he focused on the, the Gospel of John, written by the Apostle John. So the big thing that he focused on, that the themes that he drew out of the entire book were... Let's see if I can get it right. Light life and love well there's two main divisions in first john the first division is how god is light and the second division is god is love so in my opinion first john is full of johannine markers now what does that mean it's a real word some of you might not think it is but it is um so in the same way that pauline epistles you probably heard that that just means that they're written by Paul and that there are distinguishing marks of how Paul writes. And so if you hear someone like talk about Hebrews, and maybe they're arguing for Paul as the author of Hebrews. They're just like, well, this passage just seems very Pauline. And that's what they mean when they say that they're just re- referencing Paul. And so I think that first John bears many Johannine markers. So, yeah, it's a real word. You can look it up. Where was the letter written? Most scholars say Ephesus, which correlates to history, which tells us that the church in Ephesus was established by Paul and continued by the Apostle John. What is 1 John? It's a sermon, and there are poetic elements to it. I haven't studied the poetry very deeply, but um, a lot of people call it a poetic sermon. What prompted the writing of 1, 2, and 3 John? Primarily, it seems to be dissension in the church. Notice 1 John 2:18 through 24. You can turn there with me if you'd like or just listen. I really want to focus on verse 22, but let's just read the whole paragraph for context. I'll give you a minute. 1 John 2 beginning in verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now many Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be shown that they, are, that they all are not of us. It's a hard one to say. But if you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know, I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. Because no lie is of the truth. So verse 22. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. So this seems to be the crux of what prompted John to write these letters. There's a group in the church that denied Jesus was the Christ. They also denied that he was the Son of God. So let's read 22 again. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. He gets more specific about this dissension in Second and Third John, and I encourage you guys to go read that if you have more questions. Uh, Now, something about that passage, I'm not going to get into the whole Antichrist thing. That's another sermon on Revelation that Byron's going to preach someday, and I'm sure he'll do a great job. But uh, I'm I'm not doing that. Um, (laughs) But in in my opinion, I think that there is an Antichrist. I also think there is a spirit that is Antichrist. Does that make sense? These people are Antichrists. But they are not the Antichrist. And that's all I'm going to say about that. We're going to move on. and You're all going to forget I ever mentioned it. it? That would be great. Uh, so let's look at a similar passage to find some more grounding for the, this being why John wrote these letters. So we're going to read 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Uh, here I want to focus on verses 4 and 5. But again, let's read the whole paragraph for context. So, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist which you have heard that is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak us from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error see again that John is drawing a distinction. Verse 4, you are from God. Verse 5, they are from the world. So another question, our last question before we really dig into the text this morning, is why? We know it prompted the writing of these letters now. But what is their thesis? Why did John write these letters? What is he trying to do with them? Thankfully, we don't have to wonder. Uh, John answers the questions for us. Chapter 1, verse 4 says, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Did you get that? These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. That's That's a big statement. That's a really big statement. So you're saying that John wrote this letter, wrote these things, so that the believer's joy can be made complete? Yeah. That's exactly what he's saying. He tells you, he tells you from the get-go. That's, that's what this is for. So then another passage that also says something about that is our passage today. In chapter 5, verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Byron always tells us his staff to begin with the end in mind. I think he got it from a book or something. Probably not original idea to him, so don't go, don't go copyright that. But, <laughs> but this is, so that's what this is. We're, we're putting the end in mind here. And the end in mind here is that this message is for believers, so that their joy may be made complete, and that they may know that they have eternal life. So if you're a believer, then this message is for you. If you're struggling with this, this is for you so that you may know, that you may know, not speculate, not wonder, not hope, but that you may know that you have eternal life. But How? What is the truth? Uh, Let's get into our passage now, beginning in chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God, that we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world: our faith. How can I know I'm saved? Point number one. I did three points. I've been dreaming in three points. I don't know if that's a thing for people, but it's just like it's like all this alliteration and it's, it's not good. But um, I am Byron's student. What can I say? So point number one. How can I know I'm saved? The love within. So when we love God and follow him, then we can know that we love the children of God. We follow God by observing his commandments. That is not burdensome. Be careful how you read that. Noah 10 years ago would read this as, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome if you try hard enough. That's about the most backwards way you can read that passage. You're literally taking what it says and flipping it to make it say the exact opposite of what it says. It says not burdensome. That's plain. It's there. Not burdensome. That's what it means. So why is it not burdensome, though? Sometimes it feels burdensome. Why is it it supposed to not be burdensome? Because we love God. So as Byron mentioned, I'm recently married, and I've only been married for a few months. Um, but I already know for darn sure that if I get my wife flowers or do the dishes or something, that I better be doing those things because I love her. If I if I bring her flowers and, and she says, oh, thank you. And I said, well, this is what you require of me. And um, there are about two outcomes to that situation. And neither one of them are very good. One, she laughs hysterically. Um, which I've been prone to do things that have prompted such reactions. Um, or two, she slaps me in the face. Thankfully, I haven't earned that one yet. Um, but when we first decided to date, <laughs> I remember <laughs> like the first thing. It was like, okay, we're going to date now. And then I remember leaning over and being like, wait, does this mean I get to get you flowers and write you letters now? It was something I got to do and still get to do because I love her. It is not burdensome sometimes with God, we find ourselves saying, okay, well, this is what you require of me. And we forget to love God. We forget that our obedience should first and foremost be an act of love to the Lord. So this is also a good opportunity to talk about what John is doing on a literary level. So look at this with me. Notice how verse 4 kind of informs verse 1. Verse 4 says, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Now you might read that and scratch your head and say, huh? What does that mean? Whatever is born of God, whatever, whatever is born of God. What does that mean? Uh, but with verse 4 in mind, let's go back to verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Uh, this is one of those spots, you've probably heard this principle before, but let Scripture interpret Scripture. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So maybe you're still saying, what? Those who believe in Jesus is the Son of God, those who believe he's the Son of God, and the Christ, those are both important, you need both of those overcome the world. Those who believe him as the Son and the Christ, overcome the world. But you might ask, how do I know this can apply to me? How do I know that what we're talking about in the Bible can apply to me? It's a dangerous thing to read a Bible and read it into our situation. It's not written to us, but it's written for us, so how can I know that this applies to me? Verse 2. By this we know that we love the children of God and observe his commandments when we love God. So we can know because of the love that we have for God. And if we love God, we can follow his ways. So how can I know I'm saved? Number one, the love within. Point number two is the life of him. So how can I know if I'm saved? Number one, the love within. Number two, the life of him. Why is number two the life of him? Well, let's find out. Uh, Picking up in verse five. Who is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not with the water only, but with the water and with the blood. It is the Spirit who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. There are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. And the three are in agreement. So how can I know I'm saved? Number one, the love within. Number two, the life of him. So with all this going on here about the water and the spirit and the blood and all this stuff, there's the spirit. That one's hopefully pretty obvious. It's the Holy Spirit. And that's, that's what it's talking about. The third person of the Trinity, that guy. Not, not that thing, not that. Not that like not the pad that we turn up during the mute worship music. We would joke that that's the Holy Spirit knob. <laughs> it's like you just crank that up and get the. It's like oh yeah, it's more Holy Spirit now. No no no, the person of the Trinity, the person, um, not not the mystical force, but the person of the Trinity. Uh, well, what about the water? When you think of Jesus and water, there are probably a few instances that probably jump out to you. There's there's the there's his baptism. Um, he also talks about water a ton in the Gospel of John. There's a passage in John 3 where he's talking to Nicodemus and he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which was born of flesh is flesh, and that which was born of the Spirit is Spirit. Or maybe you would choose to focus in on Jesus' baptism. Uh, that's the inauguration of his earthly ministry. Uh, after this, Jesus goes and he's tempted and then he goes out and he starts ministering. That's when his world, not worldly. I, I keep, I kept on almost saying that. I'm like, it's not a worldly ministry. It's an earthly ministry. You know, not of the world. <laughs> it's very backwards. And blood, I think, symbolizes his work on the cross. His life, death, and resurrection all testify to who the Christ is. The very nature of his being, earthly, divine, and affirmed by God. Another interpretation, and this is kind of what popped into my head, is the wound in Jesus' side uh, when he dies, and the Roman soldier pierces him and pours forth water and blood. Uh, so that could be one interpretation of that. There are other passages that talk about the wound that could allude to that. But regardless of you know, which route you take, what your studies lead you to, John is referencing the fullness of the Incarnation. That's what he's talking about here. You cannot call Jesus Lord and say he was just a man. You cannot call Jesus Lord and say he was not a man. That's a real heresy. It's kind of funny. It's called docetism. You can look it up. We see Jesus, truly God and truly man, and Spirit testifies to the divinity and the humanity of Christ. Christ. Are in agreement. This is who Jesus is. And the three are in agreement. That's the last little statement in the passage that we read. Is there something deeper going on here with all this talk of testimonies and all that stuff? I think so. So I'm going to read from Deuteronomy verse or Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. So and it says. A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. The Hebrew word here for witnesses can also be translated as testimonies. Uh, I think this has a more legal connotation to it than it does like, a Christian connotation. Does that make sense? Like te- We think of testimony and we think of I think of someone sharing their testimony, which is a great thing. But um, I think it has more legal connotation to it. So, something interesting here is that the dissenters in the church John is writing to are Jewish. And I, I'm, I think they were. A lot of, lot of studies are coming out that think that it could be that. But if they're Jewish, then what John here is by saying that these three things testify. They're in agreement. What John is doing here is he's using the Torah to show how Christ is established in his proper place. John's like throwing this smack down. He's like, oh yeah, okay, well let's read the Torah. He's like, well here are the three that confirm. You can be sure of your salvation because of who Jesus is and what he has done. So how can I know I'm saved? Number one, the love within. Number two, the life of him. The next point we're going to look at is the life in him. So how can I know I'm saved? Number one, the love within. Number two, the life of him. And number three, the life in him. Why is number three the life in him? Let's find out. Uh, keep, Keep this stuff about testimony in your mind because it's coming up again. And um, John's doing that thing here that he likes to do. He's, he's re-informing. He's letting what he's already said re-inform and inform and reform and, and do all these things with what he's saying. So keep that in mind. Pick up in verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For the testimony of God is this: that he has testified concerning his Son. The one who believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has given concerning his son. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the son of God does not have the life. I think here, verses 9 and 10 are really answering the question of what really matters. The testimony of God is greater. Verse 11 is John's climactic point. I believe John's been building up to this for five chapters. And the testimony is this. You hear, you hear the suspense there? And the testimony is this. What? Well, what is it? That God has given us eternal life... And this life is in his son. So this is TMI. <laughs> but I believe the structure here in 1913 also forms a chiasm, which is a literary form used to emphasize things or draw a contrast, uh, which may or may not be the case. It may or may not be that important. But if they do form a chiasm, uh, then verse 11 is in the middle, which gives an emphasis. And the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. So how can I know I'm saved? Number one, the love within. Number two, the life of him. Number three, the life in him. Uh, We come now to our last block of text. So let's pick that up in verse 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from Him. All of this has been written to those who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. So now it's fair to bring up a point and ask the question again what is First John? Is it a test? that believers can take to see if they're really saved or not? I don't think so. There's a modern debate revolving around this issue, and so it's fair for me to make that known to you and let you go do it. Do your research and make your own, come to your own conclusions. So if it's a test, then look, what does that mean? Well, I don't think John ever asks his readers to test themselves. That's the first conclusion I'm drawing, that it's probably not a test. Although he does ask them to test the spirits. So uh, if you can see that in chapter 4, verse 1. If read as tests, then John is writing to repeatedly challenge the Christian's faith. And invite them into self-doubt. Or is it something else? Is John doing something else here? Because it's real easy to read this as a test. You can say, okay, well, am I doing this? Am I doing this? Am I doing this? I'm going to go oh, check that box, check, bo- check that box. Oh, I'm not very good at that one. Maybe I'm not saved. Or is John writing so that people who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and know that he is the Christ, can be assured of their salvation. Remember the context. Dissension and split in the church because of denial of Jesus as the Christ. John is writing in spite of the dissension that those who believe in Jesus as the Christ and the Son of God can know that they have eternal life. So what is the point? The main point is that you can know 100% if you are saved or not. You have assurance because of the love within, the life of him, and the life in him. Love, life, life. That's the point. It's only three words and two of them are the same. So hopefully it'll be a quiz next week when Byron comes back. Love life, life. There's even three L's. Man. Really, am Byron's student? <laughs> <laughs> so now moving into the application. So we've talked about all these things. What do we do with it on a practical level? Say this is this is good. I can sit in the pew and be encouraged. But what do you, what do, you do with it? Uh, My first encouragement to you is that this week, uh, if this is something you struggle with or have struggled with, read the book of 1 John. It is just like, oh man. It is just water just pouring forth on like a burn. It is so good. So please just go read it. It's really short. The The Greek is really easy too. That's what they make everyone go through when they first learn Greek. So if you want to learn Greek... You know, 1 John's a great place to start. But really, my main point of application is actually a question that I have for each of you. And this is just between you and the Lord, and only you can answer this, and only you can answer this to the Lord. Are you trusting in the blood? Or are you trusting in your performance? Obedience will not save you. Do you know Jesus? If we obey his commands and miss him, then we miss the point entirely. Maybe you've been a professing Christian for 50 years. Maybe it's embarrassing to admit. Maybe you're afraid of what people think or what people say. It doesn't matter. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you know Him? Do you believe in the name of the Son of God? We don't do an altar call here at Calvary, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But do not mistake that as there not being a call for salvation. The call to repent and believe is here. Are you sure of where you're going? There's good news. You can be sure of where you're going. So maybe we'll frame this in a little bit different way. Uh, so, so think about your past and um, think about someone's love in your life. Think about someone who you were unsure of if they really loved you or not. What would that feel like? How did that change how you acted around that person? How did it change how you felt about that person? Now think of someone else. Think of someone whose love you were absolutely sure of. Now, what's the, what's the difference there? You, I, I'm, I'm sure now the distinction is clear. There's a, there's a huge difference between those two. Those two relationships are vastly different. I think being sure or unsure of someone's love affects us more than we would like to admit. So what about you? When was a, a time in your past when you were unsure of God? When you felt like God was some warden who's sitting there waving your ticket to heaven in front of you, saying, "Well, you gotta, you gotta do a few more things for me, but then, then maybe, maybe you'll scrape by." What'd that feel like? What was life like when something hard would happen, and you felt like that? What about today? Sitting in the pews. How many of you think about that lying in your bed at night trying to go to sleep saying, well, I hope I get to go to heaven. I hope I make the cut. Maybe I'll be the bottom of the barrel and I'll be be—I'll be like the last person that God lets in. I know there are people who think that. Um, I think that. Not anymore, thankfully. But I've thought that for most of my life. So where are you at? What are you going to do about it? Don't walk away today with false assurance. Believing that what you do is enough. Do you know Jesus? What does it mean to know Jesus? What does that look like? What does that look like on a practical day-to-day level? What does it mean to know Jesus? Do you know Him or do you know about Him? Don't leave today if you have these questions or these struggles, or you know that you haven't been trusting in Jesus. But ask someone. Talk to someone. Reach out. There are people who have been doing this, who know for certain where they're going, who do know Jesus in an intimate way. I've been walking with him for years. That was was the first thing I said to Byron like 10 years ago. So I went up to him and I said, okay, I hear you. I understood your message. It was the first sermon I ever understood. It was a miracle. But um, I was 17 years old. Just crazy. He was literally preaching. And I said, okay, I get that. But now what do I do with it? And he said, and here's what you do with it. And I was like, okay. But that's what I said. I said. I said, I don't know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Like, can you, can you sit me down and show me what that looks like? So maybe you need to ask that question. What does it look like to have a relationship with Jesus? Do you have one? Or do you just know about him? And you just try to show up to church and do enough good things that where maybe God will say, okay, all right, you made the cut. You did enough good things. You were kind of close. wasn't sure if you were going to make it or not. We say it out loud. It sounds kind of silly. um, But I think a lot of us functionally believe that. don't leave today without talking to someone alright let's pray Lord we thank you for your assurance that you have given us that the spirit in us testifies that we are children of God Lord we ask that you would make abundantly clear whether we're saved or not Do we know you? Do we believe that Jesus is the Son of God? That he is the Christ? Lord, I ask that you will um, work in us. And please don't let anyone walk out of here today with a false sense of assurance. But help us to answer the question, do we really believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God? Comfort us, be with us, and guide us, and please bless us in the rest of our service. In Jesus' name.